Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food podcast with your hosts, Brian Cole and best-selling author, N.D. Wilson. This audio is brought to you by Cannonball Books and Great Homeschool Conventions. Welcome to Stories of Soul Food. Stories of Soul Food. Special episode on story structure. Yeah. We have Jess Hall back on with Andy Wilson and me. Brian, Brian Cole. Brian That's Cole. Brian Cole talking over there. We already had Jess on the show, but Jess is, you're a publisher, right? CEO of Canon Press. Right. Making you a publisher. He's also the assistant director at the Camperdown Writer's Kiln MFA, where right. I'm the director. He has a master's in creative writing from Oxford. So very fancy. But so does Brian. <laughs> so that makes me not the fancy one. This is two Oxford alumni and somebody from Idaho. But you have Talk a master's as well, right? Not from Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> Oxford's the hoity toity. I guess you have to get off the show now. The hoitiest and the toitiest. That's I'm with hoity and toity today <laughs> on Stories or Soul Food. Uh, anyway, Jess knows what he's talking about. He studied it. He works in the MFA program and he's a CEO of a publishing house. So with opinions. That's why he's here. He's not just a random friend. Right. Right. Yeah. But that's Brian's job is to be the random friend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, here I am. Not counting. Yeah. We're going to talk story structure. Yes. And uh, this is specifically in response to a question we have received. So, okay. you can blame the person who asked the question. Who's that person? Yeah, who asked? Oh, man. I can't remember. Travis. Do you remember? Is it you? <laughs> Andrew? Andrew. It was Andrew. Yes. Andrew. Question by Andrew. So, thank you, Andrew, for messaging us on the Stories or Soul Food Facebook page. And we're going to talk about structure. Do we want to start by talking about why structure matters? Like, who cares? I think we should. Yes. You're the special guest. Why does story structure matter? Because there's time. God created time. <laughs> and there's a beginning, middle, and an end. <laughs> he has an arc and story structure is part of that arc. So, why does it matter? <laughs> People hate it when you say things must be story structured. Like, that's one of the things I remember yeah. a number of my friends would, every time you said, hey, your story isn't very interesting, they would say, but that's just because you don't understand. Yeah, because you're dumb. It's clarity. I always you know, use the analogy of, to make it really simple, the Western, there's the town and it's yeah. peaceful. And then the bad guys roll into town. They try to cause chaos. And then the sheriff puts things back in order. So it's order, chaos, try to make the world right again. Okay. And that's what happened with God's creation. And that's what should happen in stories. So inherently, there's, you know, on a basic level, order, chaos, reorder. Yeah. His story. So, you wouldn't we say that you don't have a story if you don't have structure? So, that's why it's important? I mean, yeah, it's story, the structure. Is it the structure? Mm. You know, are they one and the same? Like, is telling a story revealing the structure of an incident, fictional or non-fictional? Like, this is what happened. But we still know, we, we still stylize the structure. We don't just regurgitate nature. So, the same way that we put a frame around a picture, like, when we yeah. take it. Or you muscles just, on a skeleton, right? Yeah, but you decide to move the camera lens a little bit over here to put that tree on the third, you know, to get it in the frame right, you know, to set it up. People can take beautiful photos or photos that are just like all the ones we all take all the time. But structure is huge in whether or not they are a good photo. And it's not arbitrary. 
So I think we need to kind of start like what Jess is talking about, like God, God did it. So we're imitating it. But I think it's more than that. I think there's, um, that's true, obviously. There's also a way in which story just doesn't work. Like it just like physics or aerodynamics. Why does the wing have to be curved? So the plane flies. <laughs> Otherwise, you all die. <laughs> so there's sort of a natural law around narrative, I think. And I think it's simultaneously God uses structure and we're imitating him. But it's in the nature of man. I think the, the natural law is in the way he built people. So it's in taking stories and translating them into arcs which will affect people and impact people in, in powerful ways. And so people are designed a certain way and they receive narrative in a certain way, a narrative that affects them in certain ways. And then the universe and the history of the world is structured in a certain way and there's an arc and there's order and chaos and restoration. And we see that structure in reality, but it's too big for our brains. You know, it's like, it's one of those things we couldn't, we can't retell the entire history of the world to any of us because we don't live that long. And if you told us the story of every second, that it ever happened. If you just regurgitated the entirety of it, you would run out after about 80 years of seconds and we would die before you'd finish the story. So how you take and condense and repackage, how you, how you minimize narrative to be consumable in a potent way by finite creatures who don't have the time to hear the whole thing. So only the only audience for the whole thing, well, that's the triune Godhead. So there's one, there's one audience that can process the entire thing, every aspect of every story. And for all of us little finite goldfish in the bowl, uh, we, try to, we have to condense it to a structure that works and to a structure that gets the job done in a way that feels potent. It affects us. We can consume it. We actually get the heart of it. We get the soul of it, but we get it in these little Scooby snack versions that are for our frames. So a Russian novel is still a Scooby snack compared to any story God's telling at all. And so we're constantly reducing and structuring. We have to reduce and structure, mm. find the important things and reduce and structure and reduce and structure to make it consumable by small little creatures. And I think that's, it, that's why it matters is because we're not infinite. <laughs> like we're finite. And so we have to distill things down to the most fundamental structure and one that won't take us all of our lifetimes combined to even begin. Okay, so here's a question for both of you then. Jess, when you're advising someone in the MFA, what do you have them start with? To try to write a new story? Yeah, is it structure? They talk about you can either be a discovery writer or an architect, but people come at it different and like there's no one right way. Some people will just start writing. Let's go to page one. I have an idea of a character. We're just going to start writing a scene and that can work, but I usually recommend people start by trying to sketch out what is the outline what is the architecture of the story so that you're not just drifting off and following your passions that are untamed because discovery writing works best for someone that really has honed their craft and they they subconsciously know the architecture they need mm. while discovering but if there's somebody that's trying to develop skills they should probably outline what is the main catalyst moment of this? How do I set up the important characters? And what is the target at the end of this book? Yeah. Okay. So is it helpful to run through the five act story structure or 
you know, a three act story structure. I think, you know, because that was one of Andrew's questions is how much of story structure, what is story structure? How are they all? Can we get more specific than beginning, middle and end? I think Willa Cather said there are only two or three human stories and they keep on fiercely repeating themselves until the end of time. It's the Joseph Campbell hero of a thousand faces, you know, and screenwriting. There's Robert McKee's story and Save the Cat has an outline of yeah the beat sheet of what all stories should hold together and there's the hero's journey and there's the writer's journey by chris Volger, which plays off of joseph campbell's idea that there's really only a couple if not one hero and they just have a bunch of different faces yeah which as christians we know who that real hero is and they're all just trying to retell this monomyth yeah but we know the true story although there's different aspects of that story yeah because you can tell that story from the hero's perspective or protagonist's perspective, and they become different arcs. Gotcha. So, if we were going to start, where does every story have to start? Act one, like the hero, right? At their home. Unchanged at the beginning of their journey? Well, I don't, I don't think there's a... Uh, I think the, the curve of the wing that makes a story succeed or fail is what Jess already said, which is yeah. order. chaos yeah order disorder right yeah order disorder restoration is that rhythm however if you're telling a a cautionary tale if you decide to like you know what i'm going to tell the story about this the fool in proverbs and i'm going to give you you know order disorder more disorder hell (laughs) you know like (laughs) yeah like that's that remains a story but the the question is always who are you in telling the story and what is the story what is the best part of the story? And that defined as what are you trying to accomplish for the audience? Mm-hmm. Storytelling is fundamentally self-sacrificial, fundamentally selfless, or it should be. Uh, if you're doing it to honor yourself or to please yourself or to get fame or money, then you're, you're playing by a different kind of you know, set of rules, really. But if you're trying to edify and feed an audience, if you're trying to inspire people, then you have to start by thinking, like, whom am I trying to reach? Whom am I trying to feed? What do they need from me? What do I have that they need to eat? And so you could say, I honestly, I need to tell a cautionary tale. I need to write a satire. I need to write a hero's journey story. I'm going to write, you know, a character arc where somebody actually successfully, yeah. you know, successfully grows and matures and we see some promise of restoration or we see some restoration on the other side. Or I'm going to write a story about a man continuously trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. And it gets worse and worse and worse and he loses everything. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, but what's, where's the beat at the end? And if the, if the perspective is too narrow and you're just rooted in that character and you communicate that everything's meaningless and having done that, then you failed, you've lied. But if you, as the author, release the, the reader a little bit, you step back into a more cosmic perspective, an authorial perspective. And so we are outside of the character at the end looking at him. Yeah. We've done a ride along. You know, we're reading or reading through this character's mistakes and folly. And then as you're reaching the end, we are pulling back and we're looking at that character in as part of the whole. We are still promising. There's still grace. There's things that he turned his back on. There's all this other opportunity for restoration, which he did not find. So there is a promise of restoration in reality. And I think it has to be present in any true story. In any story that's even one with a bad ending. Tragedies. Yeah, even yeah. in a tragedy. Even in a cautionary tale, even in a political satire, there needs to be the promise of restoration 
even if your characters are turning their backs on it, even if they're blinding their eyes and they're plugging their ears and they're running from God, that grace, that sunlight, that promise of restoration is still there and has to be because that's what exists in God's world. Okay. So, if you start with that protagonist, whether he's going to end up happy or sad, what's the next thing that happens in story structure? Like if we're going to go to a meta level here of narrative, that would, that would be the inciting incident. Can you tell a story yeah. without one, I guess? So here, here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not one for fighting about what makes art art or what makes a story story. The ontological argument of that's not a story. Yeah. You know, like that's not really a story. That's, that's not a story. Yeah. Or track's not a sport. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> of course it's a sport. Golf's an activity. You know, if you can smoke and drink while you're doing it, it's not a sport. Like when people want to argue about the definition of something. Yeah. That's, look at a Jackson Pollock painting and say, that's not art. That's the same thing here. That's not a story because you didn't have an inciting incident or you didn't have whatever. They didn't change. The character yeah. didn't change. Like, so it's not a story. I'm far more interested in saying that's a bad story. Yeah. That's okay. bad art. That's a, that's a dumb sport. <laughs> like, I'm not interested in fighting over the, the definition of the word story. So it's either effective or ineffective. It is good or it is bad. God likes it or he doesn't like it. It honors him or it dishonors him. And it's on a, exists on a spectrum where you have in excess, in deficiency, in excess, in deficiency for all these different attributes of a story. So you take these different pieces and you can go through a story and say, man, this character's arc is deficient. The inciting incident is in excess. You know, it's like here, what it goes crazy. Aliens arrive in you know, on page three in somebody's bedroom and you're like, ah, that inciting incident's a bit much. It's too much or whatever. So I, I'm more interested in passing judgment on the quality of the story. Okay. Rather than, than, than the on specific saying, ingredient. Yeah. Order. Than saying this isn't one. I think that's a, I think that's a fruitless argument. So I would rather say this story struggles because, or this story is weak because, and talk about a true good and beautiful you know, standard, a rubric. It's got to go back to what a story is trying to do too. Exactly. That's what it has to be measured on. Yeah. Because if you're, you can't compare Back to the Future with, you know, the Russian novel, right? right. There, yeah. The Russian novel fails on different grounds that a Back to the Future movie. Back to the Future 2 versus Brothers K, like slightly different things that have to be measured in slight, by, you know, slightly right. different things. But standards. it's not a bad thing to have a popcorn story. Right. Yeah. Like those are those exactly. are fun. It's fun to watch that. You couldn't just go home and, you know, if you're watching dramas, just watch the most intense film constantly. There's, yeah. it's, it's okay to watch, you know, Marvel once in a while. I think I mentioned on an earlier episode that I was trying to watch Wonder Woman. I finally, update, I finally finished Wonder Woman. Oh, you did? Oh, man. After like 17 installments. <laughs> finally, finally finished it. But I like, that's the kind of thing where I'm not turning my nose up. I don't want to turn my nose up at superheroes. I'm not going to say, superheroes are stupid. It's like, no, it's, it's somebody's offering me a Dorito. And the question is, is it sinful to make a Dorito? The answer is no, it's not. Is it a good Dorito? Well, I've had some bad ones. There are some bad ones. <laughs> and, and so, oh, I will, not enough MSG on that Dorito. Yeah, well, I'm, I will judge it in terms of what it is. And so, if somebody says, have you ever, do you want a peanut butter ball? I'll say, yes, please. And then I will pass judgment on it as a peanut butter ball and not as a Dorito. Exactly. And the yeah. same thing for a steak. A really, somebody says, this is the best steak of your life. It's going to need to be the best steak of my life. And I'm not going to measure it against. So, I mean, that's the criticism Back to the Future gets is people that have their nose up and they say, 
well, Marty yeah. McFly doesn't actually change. He does. He doesn't change at all in any of the stories. <laughs> the character journey is and insufficient, it's, and it's but it's hugely successful. And it's like it's just fun. It's a yeah. it's a fun idea, and that's that's what, what makes it, it successful. So, what was it for? It was not a character study at all. It was wish fulfillment. So, what was it? It was for is it was a what if story. Like, hey, what if you had a time machine? What if there was this crazy professor and you had the ability to do that? And it gave it gave the viewer an opportunity to hitch their imagination to that concept and then play it out and see it play out. Could it have been better if the character journey was improved? Sure. Fine. There could be ways, but make a concrete suggestion. If Marty McFly had fill in the blank, this goes back to what my dad made me do when I was, when I was little. What would have made it better as a popcorn movie? What would have made the popcorn better? Not what would have made it not popcorn. Exactly. So, yeah. And there are, there are plenty of times... I, well, let's just say I've met with many, many writers over the years who have a novel and I end up reading it and I say, so here's my thing. They really, really want input. And I say, so here's my criticism. And then they say, well, you don't understand what I was aiming for. Yeah. I'm like, okay, explain to me what you're aiming for. And they explain it. And then I say, often, you should not have been aiming for that. Like, that is another thing that that's not the Can ultimate standard. Can you be standard. more concrete about like they aimed for something Sinful or stupid or Just, yeah, something that failure, I guess. Something that's a bad dumb story or or doesn't doesn't yeah, something that doesn't merit it. Something that like can't hold the weight of a narrative, a theme that is not up to the task. Mm. You know, well, you don't understand. I was just trying to write a, a a novel about that would that would just convince people you need to honor your parents. That's like okay, that sure, but you didn't. That's a big that's a big one. You didn't hit that target. Well, actually, what I it was more of a like, just be fond of your parents. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's not as big. That's, that's a slightly smaller theme. Be fond of your parents. And you shouldn't have been aiming for that because it makes a bad story. Yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. that was too small a target to merit an entire novel. Or, you know, I'm just trying to write second chance love stories exclusively. You're like, okay, all right, should you be? You, you wrote one, fine. You wrote another one, fine. You're writing a third one. Should you maybe try to grow? <laughs> like, should you, the character that you are, try to grow and improve? Maybe you shouldn't be aiming at that now. You know, th that kind of rinse and repeat thing. So I'm trying to write a story that, you know, communicates. This, this is a stark example. That lying is not that big a deal. That sometimes lying is fine. You're like, well, that's okay. You know, Hebrew midwives, sometimes lying is fine. But that's, again, pretty small. And if you want to explore positive lies, negative lies, that could, a great author could do something very interesting there. But you look at the person's skill set, you look at where they're coming from, what they're trying to accomplish. And almost always they try to redefine themselves into success if they're a new author. So they write the novel and then they decide what they were aiming at by what the, you know, what the arrow hit. So I shot an arrow and I, I hit what I was aiming at because I was aiming at what I hit. Nice. Yeah. It works out. And so then you're left saying, maybe don't aim at that. Maybe that was dumb for you. And this is something most often, the, the most common example is when people write outside their own experience. And so you have like a 14-year-old girl trying to write FBI thrillers, you know, that, that kind of a thing where it's like, that's a bad target for you. Mm. That's just, that's not something you can hit. Like you're just not going to be able to do that. So adjust your target. What do you have that the reader needs? Not where do you like your imagination to, to live in your own thought life? What ability do you have? What food do you have access to the ingredients for 
that other people need to consume, that other people should consume. And so if you have, you know, a particular experience, particular access, particular idea that you think could be really, really helpful to other people, inspiring, edifying, invigorating, imagination strengthening, then go for it. But no matter what, like that's about picking the target, but each of those targets, whether it's Marty McFly or anything else, you got to have some structure to it. And each, depending on what it, what the main target is, what type of story it is, that's how you're going to define what is a good structure to tell this story, but they all, all of them will have a structure yeah. within them. And they absolutely will. And they, and once you've, once you've done the, an objective assessment of your choice of targets, you then have to do an objective assessment of your approach to that target and whether or not you're hitting it. And if you think about some of the favorite, you know, some of the great series, some of the great books that are out there, Tom Wolf would be an example of where like, okay, so I am Charlotte Simmons is, uh, you know, it's aiming at something. It's trying to brutally open the eyes with a great deal of violence of like open American eyes to how awful the American college experience is and how much it destroys good kids. It's like, okay, you read that thing. That thing is hard to read. That is a book that is hard to read because it's so full of despair and filth. And so afterwards you could say to Tom, I don't know that you should have aimed at that. But man, he hit that target. So he really, really hit that target and he destroys this poor girl and it's not fun. It's not meant to be entertainment. You know, he had a different, he had a different task in mind. And so if you're thinking, I'm looking for an entertaining book, don't go read that. But it is a book I recommend to any parents who are thinking about shipping their kids off across the country to, you know, live in the dorms at a big school. It's like, you know what? Read I Am Charlotte Simmons because this is what it actually looks like when you're not there on parent day. You know, this is, this yeah. is it. So he had, a, he had a particular target. It was a takedown new journalistic novel. He could defend why he did it. And it was not intended to be a tasty meal. It was intended to turn the lights on and, and show people that they're standing in sewage. You know, like that's what he was trying to do. And, that's, and then his, his structure works really, really well for it. He executes it extremely well. If you jump over to Lord of the Rings, you say, is that a Dorito? What is that? Like, what is Lord of the Rings? Is that, is that popcorn? Is that supposed to be like an amazing steak? What are we, like, by what standard are we going to measure that series? And now it's old and deeply loved. And so it gets treatment of a certain level, right? It's treated as almost sacred by a lot of people. So what do you, what do you think it is, Jess? What oh, is Lord man, of the Rings? That's tough. Yeah, I hit you with the hard question. <laughs> uh, let me deflect in such a way that a lot of, <laughs> a lot of kids are going to try to write what they think is the next Lord of the Rings, yeah. but it is aiming at the theme of like abortion is bad or yeah. just something really, they'll, they'll come up with a theme that they want to tell and then they're going to throw it in a Lord of the Rings type world, yeah. some fantasy land. Make it allegorical. And, and make yeah. it allegorical or just like have these characters that don't need to be elves <laughs> being elves to right. go along with their agenda <laughs> for their storytelling. Right. And so that's what would make Lord of the Rings what makes it so great is that he isn't just using different civilizations and types of characters for the fun of it, although he has fun with it. Yeah. They have a purpose and they come with their own agendas from every side and it's a well-woven piece of cloth. Yeah. So, what was, Brian, what do you think Tolkien was trying to do? Was he trying to serve up a Dorito, a piece, a little little bit of popcorn? Maybe this will be 
He's absolutely not. I mean, I think C.S. Lewis described it as here are beauties which pierce like iron or burn like cold fire, right? Yeah. And, and so I think that's the standard we can evaluate this on is the beauty and the grandeur of the Lord of the Rings something that cuts you and makes you get that sense of loss within a story. Something that basically I think Tolkien was trying to retell the Nordic myths with yeah. their bleak, their bleak, bleak worldview, trying to put it in almost a Christian context and retell us in a way where we can appreciate loss and beauty of grandeur, which has gone and won't come again. So I yeah. think that's the way we'd evaluate him on. Has he, has he told a myth? Yeah, I think that, I think, well, you just touched the word. I think Tolkien was trying to write a fictional mythology for England. You yeah, know, like this Middle Earth concept, like he was going to, I mean, he was aiming high. Exactly. That's what he was aiming at. He yeah, was right. aiming high. Yep. Now, but at the same time, he believed, and this was true in his culture and for him and for his friends, that mythology was for fun. The mythology was, was pleasure. It was pleasant. It was a pipe by the fire with a, with a good pint. And, you know, it's like that you're going to sit by the fire in a dim room and listen to a bard. And for him, that was pleasant and, and a joyful thing and something he experienced and something he loved to do with his friends that took the place of what people now do, which is where they binge on Netflix. So the way he consumed story for pleasure was at such a higher level class-wise, mm. you know, it's like and higher level intelligence-wise that I think he was still in pursuit of pleasure, in pursuit of joy. He was, he was trying to delight. But in order to delight, he had to tell a tale of grandeur and loss and yeah. epic civilizations. Like that's his threshold for delight was so much better than was Netflix. so much higher. <laughs> yeah. So he's, you know, he wants to be in the back room of an ancient pub by the fire with a pipe, telling stories with friends and having it be communal and having it be in shared history and having it, you know, be an imaginary fictional mythology for the nation he loved, for the countryside he loved. And so I think it was a deeply skilled, deeply talented bard trying to make popcorn. Like his version of popcorn, but his version of his version of popcorn is like our version of a 50-year single malt. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> it's like his craft and his ability. So I think it's it's uh, an example of the sagging standards, you know, the kind of the loss of, you know, I don't think we really have academics who are capable of doing what he did, you know. Right. If that was totally true though, wouldn't there be way more stories on the level of Lord of the Rings? That we could go back to in his era, no, because he just his popcorn was just way better. Even though he was well, I think, but like, and popcorn is is metaphorical, right? There. You know, it's um, his level of talent, his level of insight, and his ambition. At the time, I think at the time people were eager for the modern, and he lived in a moment when everybody was desperate for the modern, for the new, for the the advance of man, for the the next level that hg wells everybody pushing further up and further in in a bad way you know into tech and machinery and invention and you know the new dominion of man and he was nostalgic for something older and better you know i think that i think what tolkien did personally is kind of like what milton tried to tackle where milton said i'm going to write an epic poem in english the first one right? yeah and i think yeah. that tolkien set out to do the same kind of thing I'm going to write an epic right. mythology for England while everybody else is looking forward and trying to worship science and the coming power of science and science, the ascension of science. Tolkien said, I'm going to look in the rear view and I'm going to try to, you know, do something ancient and do something that measures up 
by ancient standards, you know, that, that kind of storytelling. And I think he accomplished it. I think he achieved it and it's had a significant impact, shall we say, on the yeah, history I mean, of narrative. I sense. read uh, Tolkien and the Great War, Garth's book that yeah. just came out and Tolkien and his group of friends, the TCBS were wanting to do things that changed the world. That was, that yeah. was, that was their goal. But we quickly got to get on to the mid, I think we need to at least touch on what are the technical beats of the technical rest of beats. the story. Okay. So, we so, inciting incident then goes to- Yeah, if we go through the simple structure, we have uh, kind of like opening, like here we are opening the world as, you know, as it is, and that could be the Garden of Eden, you know, and, and the, the rules- on the ground of the Hobbit. Yep. Yeah. And the, and the rules of the garden are don't eat that fruit. And uh, then the inciting incident is the arrival of a serpent, you know, and there, there we go. Here, mm-hmm. here we go. Next, next step, the fall. From there, chaos being cast out and promises, foreshadowing of the seed of the woman. And this is where we have to jump in human, human attention spans. You think about the thousands of years that passed in between that fall and the coming of the Messiah. You know, like we don't have the attention span to process all the movements and arcs. You know, there, so almost the fall but, comes almost at the midpoint. And then we have Dark Knight of the Soul for 2,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, or you jump and you're like the coming of the law. And this is, this is a big, complicated tapestry, which it is. But if you distill it down to the, the basics, there's that chaos and, you know, chaos and tossed out of the garden, the loss of the garden. Mm-hmm. It's like, then we're going we're gonna to go ahead, Jess. Move, in, move into act two. Because yeah. you, you, I like okay. the structure of just simplicity of you have your thesis world. We're going to set everything up. Yep. And then- serpent getting thrown out of the garden, the, your world just went upside down. So, we have the upside down version of that world, the yep. antithesis world, and you work th- through yeah. that until you get to the end, and which is the three. synthesis world where yep. those two things get married. So, like the new heaven and the new earth yeah. is the synthesis of, you know. Yeah. The and there's, there's so many, the fall. thing is the complexity, there's so many spinoffs, right? And so, in the middle, along the way, there's the coming of the law and there's the exodus, and there are all these micro, micro cycles that are telling the same story. So, you have all these micro versions that are embedded in history, embedded into the macro story. So, where you have order, you have chaos, and then you have savior restitution. And then in that restitution, that gives you your new, your new stasis, which then goes into disorder. It's like that's that new stasis, the new disorder, new savior, new, new restitution, and it goes and goes and goes. And there are all these cycles in the life of Samson and King David and Solomon and everything else where there's different variations on order and fall, mm. order and fall, and then restitution. And then you finally come to, at the end, you finally come to the one who does not fall, the one who stands. And then everything, the synthesis begins and everything finally tips, the scales tip and things start going the other direction. And you start seeing things like yeast, which is a symbol of you know, pollution. In the old covenant is now a symbol of faith and christ tells the believers you know it's like leaven the whole loaf oh like it's yeah like and, and there's all yeah. this inversion of imagery that comes at that hinge and then god shifts the narrative into a bunch of bunch more little cycles martyrs and so on and he starts telling a bunch of different stories that echo that one differently that all come together in one big structure so there's constant micro storytelling you know, along the framework of the big macro storytelling. Yeah. But there's a reason why, you know, we see Christ announcing his victory to the, the spirits that sinned in the time of Noah. It's yeah. like in the three days in the grave, he announces his victory to the spirits that sinned in the time of Noah. He's closing off an ark, 
uh, the spirits of sin of the time of Noah were, you know, they were very, very much the seed of the serpent. Mm. You know, it's like, and you have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and there's a loop that's getting closed there that goes back a couple thousand years that is played out in lots so, of little So depending grounds. on what lens you're looking through, you've got Jess's thesis, antithesis, synthesis world, or you're zooming in very close and you can even see three-act structure in those tiny stories. Yeah, but, you, but this, this is all about the, the almost, almost not, but almost infinite way that you could structure and rearrange uh, the telling of the story. Yeah. So your opening scene could be what? You know, Christ feeding the 5,000. And you could end up back in the garden. And it depends on whether you're telling a big wandering novel or you're pursuing the structure of a series, you know, like a, a 12 episode season of a show, or you're going with a two hour movie. Like each of these things has different space for different movements. And I think the, the looping series structure is one that we really see, I mean, just naturally see in, uh, in the world so many different characters and so many different sidebars, all of them foreshadowing the coming of a Messiah and either foreshadowing effectively or ineffectively, you know, it's like failing and being foils or, you know, succeeding and being heroes, Elijah succeeding, Enoch succeeding, Samson succeeding and failing, but succeeding, Samson cruciform. Like there's, there's lots of these little details. Samson cruciform with his hands on, on these pillars going to his death. So it's like, that's not accidental. These little micro arcs are like, okay, his hands are up. His arms are outstretched. Samson dies, cruciform. Moses with his hands up, cruciform. Like Moses holding his hands up over a battle. Cruci There's all these like revolutions and, and, and echoes and it's wildly complex. So if somebody said, hey, could you do the history of the world in a two hour movie? Sure. But that's back to the wrong target. Like, like, okay, so what's the, what's the right target, the wrong target for the opportunity you have and the abilities you have? It's too big. It's too big for that. It's, it's about picking the frame too, right? Yeah. So it's, you know, if you're going to tell the history of the whole world, you know, that, that's one. But then you have the story of David, the story yep. of Moses. But you can't do half of the story of Moses through half of the story of David. No. Like you're picking the yeah. wrong time frame. Good point. So you have to know what. Like if you're a writer, you have to know whose story you're telling and where that starts and ends. And that's yeah. the beginning. And like actually a huge hurdle that people are trying to tell a huge swath of time and they have, they want to throw in a bunch of different arcs, but just keep it simple yeah. and yeah, pick a character. But so this, I just had this happen in, in a little parenting story. My fifth grade daughter comes to me and she's just like, I hate the story of Judah and Tamar. I hate it. I hate it so much. Like, what is going on? You know, she's just really bothered by it. And this is, we've talked before about don't keep your kids from scripture. It forces you into conversations that you wouldn't just decide to have. Judah and Tamar being one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my fifth grade daughter is like, why is she being a prostitute? I'm like, well, she's not actually. It's more complicated than that. You know, it's, and this is, and I have to reset the frame for her. And what is Judah doing? You know, Judah is robbing his daughter-in-law, stealing her lands, stealing the inheritance that she would have had from Judah's son. Like, and he could have died, right? Yeah. yeah. And so Judah's, and by law, Judah's supposed to give her, you know, another husband. He doesn't. The reason why he's supposed to give her another husband is so she has an heir so that she won't lose her property so that that property will pass on. But it's all about the heir. Judah owes her an heir of the line of Judah. And so she tricks Judah because he's a hypocrite. And if she hadn't, then the line of the Messiah is broken. So like how, how big do you set 
that frame. So for her, I talked about like, this was a big deal. Like there's promises about the Messiah coming through the line of Judah. And this is, this is where it's coming. And he is uh, stealing it. it. He's stealing that line from Tamar. And so because he's a hypocrite and a pig, she tricks him by dressing up as a prostitute and she receives an heir of the line of Judah. And she is the righteous one in that story. Now, this is all a hot mess, right? It's a hot Old Testament mess. <laughs> yeah. But it's that kind of thing where it's like, no, you have to, we have to, I have to reframe this and reframe this for you carefully. So you understand what the stakes were. Like the stakes here are not, she wants to be married. And so she decides that having Judah's baby is good enough. It's like, no, that is nothing. That, this is a totally different thing. There's a big, big hinge here. So you think about in that hideous strength, there's a, this heartbreaking scene where Merlin looks at Jane and wants to behead her because she was using birth control. And so she, pre- she prevented herself from having the child who would have brought about peace for a thousand years. You know, it's like, mm. and it's like ship has sailed. It's a classic Tolkien moment where it's just loss and will never come back. It's gone. You screwed up and Merlin wants to kill you now because you did that. And Jane is appalled, you know, doesn't understand what's going on. Uh, that's kind of the situation Tamar was in. It's like she was of the Messiah's line and for Judah to turn, you know, turn the spigot off on the Messiah's line and just say, no, there will no longer be, you know, live water moving here. This is going to be a dry riverbed was a big deal. It was a very, very big deal. And what Tamar did is far more significant than what Esther did, but very similar. You know, it's like Esther ends up saving her people by being willing to be a later wife, a later wife to an evil You're man. A member of a harem, right? Yeah. So a woman, a, a queen's getting thrown away and Esther, you know, and Mordecai through his chess playing end up saving her people and they still have holiday, a holiday about it to this day. Uh, my son was just making Haman's ears, you know, on the appropriate day, the, the Haman's ears cookie. They were great. So when you tell the stories, you realize that the, the messiness of those stories kind of bothers us often, but it's about where you grab the frame, where you put the frame. And if you zoom in too close on the Judah Tamar story, you miss the frame. And so everybody looks evil. And if you back it out, there's a completely different thing going on there with different stakes, a different risk, and an extremely desperate move by a woman with faith. I mean, like a really, really like last ditch desperate move, you know, that, that God honors and that Christ came from, came that out line. of that. Yeah, from, from that, that line. line. So, and brags about it, you know, that gets pointed out later. And the uh, gospel genealogies, right, yep. Tamar? So that was like, okay. I mean, it didn't like make her like that story because a, it's a hot mess of an Old Testament story. But it was like, I, like she could understand it better. Like that Tamar, she could, she could understand that Tamar was not being evil. She was not being Jezebel. You know, it's sort of, it's, um, it's just not the same. She wasn't being Delilah. She wasn't being Jezebel. It was a different story because of where the frame goes. And so how do, we, how do you structure it? And how do you arrange it really does reveal how you judge it and how you receive it once it's told. So establishing the stakes and establishing the frame matters a lot. That's great. I think that gives a lot of food for thought for a new novelist looking at story structure. Any last thoughts? I think if anybody's interested in like fleshing that out or maybe they're pushing back against like, uh, no, it's not that simple. I do in my screenwriting class at NSA, I have my class fill out the beat sheet using right. the Bible, yeah. using the story of the world. Yep. And, you know, you can fill out the beat sheet that has, you know, the three act structure and 
they can fill it out starting with you know the garden god created everything and then ending with pentecost or you can tell the same thing with jesus being born and ending in pentecost or new heavens and new earth Mm. however you want to break it up but you can people can break it up in a ton of different ways and it all holds together and so i ask at the end of that and people share theirs and i say did that feel forced and they say no it was amazing actually how well that yeah you can find these different beats yeah and And that says something that says something it's there where if your story doesn't have it it's because you're not doing the work it's not because you're not being authentic right back to where we started with the clarity and that's what a story is that's so that's cool i I need to i need to go try that (laughs) yeah Uh, i'm the question really is is the dark night of the soul in the garden or is the dark night of the soul in the grave you know it's like if we're talking about structure you have inciting incident you just kind of state your theme early inciting incident break into two your big what people say fun and games at the beginning of act two israel where you play around (laughs) yeah you play around with the premise you play around with the premise at the beginning of act two then you have a big midpoint either a, a false high or an extreme low and you break you know you break out of two when the bad guys are closing in and everything's getting really bad and you have a dark night of the soul you know and act three is usually pretty short you know much much shorter act two is big dark night of the soul and like elf i think is in save the cat it's like when you're standing on the bridge and it's a little whiff of suicide a little whiff of like <laughs> is elf gonna jump off the bridge but is the dark night of the soul when christ is deciding yes i'm going to the cross when he's praying in the grave and the disciples and not in the grave in the garden and the disciples are all falling asleep or is it after death yeah and, three he's, days. and he's and he's three days in the grave um, yeah. all is lost yeah the, the messiah is, is gone the all is lost and then the finale and then you have the big finale and then of course because it's god's story it never ends and there's a new arc starting and so you have a new piece and it's kind of an interesting one if you start imagine starting a story on easter and all is restored christ is back 500 people are out of the graves in jerusalem yeah. and then he's like and by the way i'm leaving I'm back, but I'm leaving. You were worried I was gone and you were correct, but I'm gone not into, into death, but into ascension. And so you have Pentecost and you have the early martyrs and you have this, you know, the spread of the church and, right. and everything else. You can begin the story in different places. And there's also places you cannot, it's not like you can just slice it anywhere, but there are different places that can function as openings, you know, different places that can be dark nights, different places that are always lost moments, shipwrecks, viper bites. Yeah. You know, escaping cities, murdering Stephen. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different places. So whatever they decide is the story, they got to know what that structure is so that yeah. they can frame it right or else they're going to be drifting into the second story that doesn't fit into the frame that they already started. And if it's something like that, then you're trying to serve the story cuz it really happened. If you're trying to write the story of the first Marines in World War II, you're trying to serve the story. Like a story occurred and you're trying to serve it. You're trying to write the story of the world. You're in service of the story and you're trying to find the best structure for it to deliver it to the audience. If you're just making something up, then you're thinking about what do I have access to that the audience could benefit from and I'm going to try to create something and then structure something that will, will be helpful. So it is, it is actually, especially early on when you're playing with structure, it's really helpful to focus on the real, working with history, working with scripture working with things that are fixed. And so you can just discipline your, your structural instincts before you wander all the way off into fiction. Into Disney. All the cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> okay. Did we cover it, Andrew? I hope yeah. so. We'll find out. Let us yeah. know. Yeah, let, <laughs> let us know. know. All righty. Thanks, Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers.
Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Stories or Soul Food podcast. Before I let you go, I wanted to let you know that Cannonball Books has republished George McDonald's princess series, The Princess and the Goblin and The Princess and Curdie. We added two brand new beautiful covers to these classic works and a fascinating introduction to both from Timothy Larson. C.S. Lewis once said, I have never concealed the fact that I regarded George MacDonald as my master. Indeed, I fancy I have never written a book in which I did not quote from him. So join C.S. Lewis and his joy of George MacDonald by going to canonpress.com and getting your copies of the Princess series. <laughs>